0: Merry Christmas. And in the spirit of Christmas, my daughter decided to give me a gift early, the gift of this terrible chest cold. So you're actually hearing a much worse version of my voice than the first service did, but you're smarter for coming to this service because in the spirit of Christmas break, our heater decided to take the day off yesterday, and we didn't know that. So when we walked in here this morning, it was 47 degrees in this room which is good if you wanna like keep some food cold, but not good if you wanna have church. And so uh, we got a call out to the repair people. They came, they're fantastic. But uh, when service started, it was about 50 in here. So uh, I told the earlier service that, that they were the real survivors, that they really suffered and they had more character, more character than you guys. But really the truth is you guys are smarter than them, so. Uh. So you missed out on that. So you're going to have to bear with me this morning. I apologize for my voice. We'll see what we can. We'll see what we can get through this morning. Uh, we are in our. Uh, we are in a three sermon series called Down to Earth. What we're doing in this Christmas season is we're studying a passage from Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through seven. Isaiah is a Jewish prophet who lived about 700 years before Jesus was born. And uh, the passage we're looking at is considered a messianic prophecy because it speaks of the coming Messiah. And last week we looked at the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 9 and we talked about the light, that a great light has come to us at Christmas. A light has shined on those who walk in darkness and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness have seen a light. And last Sunday we talked about the light. And this morning I want to talk to you about peace, the peace that we find at Christmas. How many of you know that, People got lots of things they're hoping to get this week. But if they could exchange all those gifts for peace, they'd do it. If you could get peace on Amazon, if Amazon Prime could get you peace in two days, you'd do it. Christmas story brings us peace. We're gonna look at just three verses from Isaiah chapter nine this morning. The prophet writes these words. He's speaking to God here. He says, God, you have multiplied the nation, speaking of Israel. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, these are their enemies, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It may not sound like it, but this text is describing a future time of peace. A time of peace. And there's three things we're going to learn together this morning about the peace that Isaiah is prophesying about. Three things we're going to learn about the peace that Jesus brings to us. Three things we're going to learn about the peace that Christmas is all about. And the first thing is this. This is a peace against all odds. Against all odds. You know, we're a society that loves the rags-to-riches story, right? So many movies have been uh, made about uh, a nobody who becomes a somebody. And we love it. We love the underdogs. We love upsets. That's why anybody with a soul yesterday was rooting for the Bills against the evil patriots because yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> the patriots are the evil empire. And, and uh, you know, we're rooting for the underdogs. We want to see the David rise up and smack Goliath Brady right in his face. Like, that's what we... <laughs> That's what we all want to see, right? I still believe that they're going to see each other in the playoffs, and I'm going to prophesy right now. I'm just kidding. (laughs) When Isaiah wrote these words, Israel was a mess. They had been 200 years since they actually had been Israel together. 200 years prior, they had a civil war. Ten of the 12 tribes became the northern kingdom. Two of the tribes became the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And so, at this point in their history, it's been 200 years since they've been united, 200 years since they've had a king who loves God. And uh, they're, they're, they're surrounded by enemies from the north. The Assyrians want to attack them. To the south are their brothers and sisters who they're estranged from and who they're in a civil war with. There's spiritual decay, there's moral decay and the Assyrians are about to drag them into exile. They're about to be pulled from their homes and their communities and their villages and dragged into a new place with a new language, with new customs, and basically be refugees or prisoners of war. And in spite of that reality, Isaiah prophesies peace. He says, God, you will multiply the nation and you will increase its joy. And I'm sure the people of Israel read this and heard this and thought, Isaiah, you're crazy. How is he going to multiply a nation that's just been scattered? How is he going to multiply a nation that no longer exists? How is he going to multiply a nation that's in exile? How is he going to do that? And how is he going to increase our joy? There's no joy at all. It was a time of grief and sorrow and suffering and regret and lament because the Israelites knew we brought this on ourselves. We loved other gods more than the true God. And so here we are in exile to the very people that we've been raised up to be an example to. We're now enslaved to them. And Isaiah says, well, there's a better day coming. How is it possible? And the clue is in the text. He said in there, did you notice that he mentioned that God will break them as on the day of Midian? That's a clue. That's how we understand what Isaiah is talking about here. When he says the word Midian, all the Israelites would have known what story he was referencing. 500 years before something incredible had happened for the people of Israel. At that point, they weren't a nation with a king. They were a federation of tribes, and they had a bunch of judges that would rule over them, and they were under attack by their neighbors, the Midianites, and the Midianites were different than some of their other enemies. Some of their other enemies wanted to kill them and destroy them and enslave them. The Midianites actually were entirely happy with them staying where they were because the the Midianites' technique was starvation warfare. If you've seen a bug's life, And you know Hopper and the grasshoppers that would come once a year and claim their uh, food for themselves? It's essentially who the Midianites were. They would say, you work the fields, you do all the hard work, and at harvest, we're gonna come in and we're gonna take all your food. Now, that sounds painful. Somebody who loves food, that sounds like a terrible, terrible life. I mean, imagine, like, you know, you're going to eat some good food these next couple of days, hopefully. I'm, I'm going to try and make a standing rib roast for my family. My mom's favorite cut of meat is prime rib. Of course, you got to have horseradish and au jus, right? And so I'm, I'm going to make something like that. If you got a great recipe, send it my way. But, I mean, can you imagine, like, you know that feeling of, like, you, you just made the perfect plate? Like, you know, like, I need to Instagram this plate. Like, this is the perfect plate of food. Everything looks, everything is in its right spot. The sauces are all in the right spot, everything. And you've made the plate. Imagine making that plate, and as you sit down, someone just comes by and just eats all your food right in front of you and then runs into your kitchen and destroys all the other food, even though they don't want to eat it. That's what the Midianites were doing. They were taking all the food for themselves, and then whatever food they didn't actually need for themselves, just out of spite, out of cruelty, they were destroying all the other food. So the Israelites were left with nothing. So God needs to raise up a judge, and he finds a man named Gideon. Gideon's a very unexpected judge for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is where God finds him. God finds Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. You probably don't know anything about threshing wheat because this is 2019, but threshing wheat is something that has to take place on an elevated territory because you need the wind to blow through so that the chaff can be blown away and what they would do is they would just toss the wheat up in the air and as the chaff and the grain would fall because they were heavier all the all the all the wheat all the all the unneeded stuff would get blown away by the wind and then you'd be left with just just the wheat the kernels but Gideon's doing it in a wine press and wine presses were stone circular stones or circular spaces cut out into stone sunk down He's in the worst possible place to thresh wheat. There's no wind coming. Why is he there? Because he's afraid. So God finds a man who's so afraid that, he, that he's threshing wheat in a wine press, and he calls him a mighty man of valor, and he says, I'm going to raise you up to deliver my people from the Midianites. Now, the historians don't totally agree on this, but we think there are probably about 130,000 Midianite warriors, 130,000. Gideon gets all the men who will come from the surrounding uh, tribes and there's 32,000 men. So 32,000 men against 130,000 men. It's not good odds. They're outnumbered about four to one. And God says to Gideon, this is never gonna work. You got a problem. Gideon's like, I oh, know I got a problem. We're outnumbered four to one. And God says, yeah, you have too many men. Too many men. Gideon's like, are you crazy? He's like, yeah, get the 32,000 men until any of you are scared, and you mama boys, you can go home. The rest of us will fight. So, 22,000 men leave, and now Gideon's left with 10,000. Now they're outnumbered one to 13, 10,000 against 130,000. And God says, "You still have too many. Bring them down to the river. Tell them to get. Tell them it's a break. Tell them to get a drink of water. All the guys who bend over and lap water out of the river like their dogs, send them home. Only the men who take a knee." and make their hands into a cup, and bring the water to their mouth, and stay alert and aware to their surroundings. Those are the men I want you to keep. 9,700 men, because we're lazy, drink it like dogs. They get sent home. Gideon's left with 300 men, so now it's 300 men against 130,000. I can't even do the math. And then God says, it's time to fight, and here's what I want you to take. I want you to take a torch. I want you to take a pitcher. And I don't want you to take your musical instruments. And I'm sure the Israelites are like, uh, how about a sword? <laughs> Maybe a shield? Can we throw bow and arrow in? Like something? A, a torch? A, a lantern or a pitcher? And horns? Like this is, sounds like craft time. Like not war time. Like what are we doing? And God sends them and he divides them into three smaller groups of 100. And they surround the Midianites who have positioned themselves in a valley out of their arrogance. Because you never want to fight from a valley. And at the time that God commands them, they break the pitchers, they light the torches, they blow their horns, and then they yell, the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon. And what happens is God puts such fear and confusion into the Midianite camp that they all pull their swords and begin to slaughter each other. In the darkness of the night, during a shift change... They're confused. They don't know who's who. They begin to kill each other. And all the Israelites do is stand there and they watch. They watch the victory. And that's the story that Isaiah references when he talks about the peace that Jesus is going to bring. Why? Because it's a peace against all odds. It doesn't make any sense. It's a peace we can't win for ourselves. It's a peace that has to be won for us think about it if Gideon led them to a victory even though they were outnumbered unarmed and they didn't even fight how could they have possibly won that war it was against all odds and this future reality that Isaiah is prophesying about this time of peace this peace of Christmas the first thing we need to know this morning is that this peace that Jesus comes to give us it's against all odds isn't there so much evidence in our world today peace and humanity doesn't work very well does it we can't get along with other nations. We, our nation can't get along with itself. It's probably as obvious now as ever. And the irony of all the drama that's happening right now in our nation is it's Christmas time. It's Christmas time. It's a time of peace. And there's no peace. There's conflict and there's, and there's war and there's battle. It's a peace against all odds. And the peace that Jesus wants to bring to our world today, to America, to, our, to, to New York, to our cities, to our towns, to our homes, and to our hearts, it's still a peace against odds. You wouldn't bet on it, but Jesus brings this peace. The second thing we learn about this peace is not only is it a peace against all odds; it's a peace in all of life. In all of life. In verse three, uh, Isaiah says that he paints two very different pictures. He paints a picture of people rejoicing with joy at harvest time, and he paints a picture of people who are glad as they are plundering the spoils from a victory of battle. And so these are two different seasons of life. Peace, war, harvest, spoil. But both times, God is saying they are rejoicing. And here's what the commentators say Isaiah is trying to drive home, that there is a completeness to the joy and the peace that Jesus wants to bring you. Jesus, listen to me this morning, Jesus wants you this morning, he wants you to experience peace and rest in every area of your life, in every moment of your life. You know, Jesus is not interested in just bringing you peace for two hours on Sunday morning when you're here. He wants you to have peace for eight hours on Monday when you're at work. That would be a miracle, right, in some cases. He wants you to have peace in your home, in your heart. He wants you to have peace in your relationships. And at Christmas, um, sometimes we end up with people that we have estranged relationships with, and God wants to give us peace. Jesus came didn't just to give you peace some of the time and for some of life. Jesus came to give you peace in all of life. And when they talk about the harvest time and the victory in battle, back then, thousands of years ago, the, 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 the modern mindset, our mindset, has come up with scientific explanations for everything, like the harvest and victory in battle. And that's fine. It's not the enemy. But they didn't think that way back then. Anytime there was a good harvest, it was a gift from God. Anytime they won a battle, it was a gift from God. Everything was a gift from God. And so when Isaiah talks about the harvest and the battle, he's talking about things that the original recipients or hearers of this would have said, that's a divine gift. Now let me ask you this. What is the divine gift at Christmas? What's the divine gift that Isaiah is pointing forward to here? Yes, the divine gift is Jesus, but why did Jesus come? Jesus came for, we could, there's a lot of different answers that probably would work here. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. The divine gift of Christmas is reconciliation reconciliation, that we were separated from God, that we were estranged from God, that there was a divide between us and God. And it wasn't a divide that we could, we sang it this morning, how great the chasm. It's a mountain I couldn't climb. And, and so this separation that we experience at the very beginning of time with Adam and Eve and the sin, and when the sin enters the world and the fall happens, we've, we experience four separations. There's a separation between humankind and God. Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the garden, and now when he comes, they hide from him. There's a separation. So there's a vertical separation. There's a horizontal separation. Uh, Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, and we start turning on each other. And to this day, we still turn on each other. There's a separation between humankind and creation. But then the other separation I want to mention, you can miss this, there's actually a separation within ourselves. There's a way in which, listen, there's a way in which sin separates you from who you're supposed to be. Separates you from yourself because God created you to bear his image. And sin effaces that image. It marks that image, it taints that image, and actually prevents us from being uh, who God created us to be. And that's why we don't have inner peace. That's why it's hard to fall asleep at night sometimes. That's why you struggle in some cases with the emotions that you struggle with because of the effect of sin sort of separating who I am from who I think I should be and who I was created to be. Dorothy Sayers, the famous author, says that sin is an interior dislocation. It's a deep interior dislocation of the soul. Somehow something inside of us is broken, and we need this peace in all of life. And there's a real sense, see if you identify with this, there's a real sense in which sin, loving anything more than God, trusting anything more than God. Sin is the root of all inner conflict. Every feeling of inadequacy, insecurity, and inhibition is because we lack inner peace. And Jesus, by the way, uh, as he did often, he warned us about this. He said, uh, what good is it for you if you gain the whole world, but you lose yourself? You lose your soul. And that Greek word for soul that Jesus used there is the Greek word psyche, from which we use words like psychology. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying what good is it if you chase after everything out there but you lose yourself in the process? you got to trade in who you were created to be. you got to wrap your identity around the things you're pursuing after. And that's what we do, right? We look to things and we think, that will give me peace. That relationship will give me peace. That person will bring me peace. That job will give me peace. That career, that experience, that level of respect, approval of that person, acceptance by that group, access into that circle, those are the things that will give me peace. But here's what you do. When you pursue those things, you lose yourself in the pursuit of it because your identity now is so wrapped up so tightly in what you're pursuing that the very thing that you thought would bring you peace, it actually moves you further from peace. And it moves you further from yourself. And Jesus came to bring us a peace in all of life peace with God, peace with one another, and even peace with ourselves. Now, how did he do it? Let's go to our last point this morning. It's a peace against all odds, it's a peace in all of life, but lastly, it's a peace for all of time. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5, he said this. I don't know if we can get that verse back up there, Julia. Isaiah nine verse five. This was the weirdest. Ver- this was probably the weirdest verse I read this morning. Right when I read this, you're probably like, "What in the world?" Uh, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is Isaiah on about here? Like, what is he talking about? And there's two imageries that we have to understand. There's the boots and there's the garments rolled in blood. What do they represent? Well. At this time in warfare, at this point in history, they didn't have, not everybody wore boots. Most of the infantry went barefoot into war. The only people that actually wore boots were like the cavalry, which I think is kind of weird. You'd think the people on the ground would wear the boots. The people on the horses could go barefoot, but that's not how they did it. I think it was a status thing. So cavalry and officers would wear boots, and the people on the ground would go barefoot. And so boots were viewed as a tremendous tool for success, a tremendous tool for battle. To have boots was a big deal. Boots was how you won. But the garments rolled in blood, and I, I, I don't 100% know, but this is what I read. The historians and commentators say that one of the ways that we can understand this is that um, when, you, when they would defeat somebody in battle, they, would, they could take their garments that were stained with the blood, and they would take it almost like a trophy. Look who I defeated. Look who, look who I beat. And so what you have here is this, with the boots and the garments, you have tools for battle. And you have the trophies of battle. Does that make sense? You have the tools that you would use for warfare, and you have the trophies that you would gain from warfare. And when Isaiah prophesies that someday they're going to just be used to bring warmth to people, what he's saying? There's a day coming when you won't need either anymore. You won't need your tools for battle because there's a peace, a peace for all time. And you won't need all the trophies from the battles that you think you've won Because those things won't define you. There's a greater peace. Now, let me try to bring this home for us this morning. I think every single person in this room is in a battle for something. All of our lives we're battling for something. And you can look at different seasons of your life and say, in that season I was battling for control. I was battling for love, for respect, for approval, for status, for meaning, for importance, for security. All of us are battling for something. And it's that inner battle that lets us never really rest, that keeps us from really experiencing the peace of Christmas. And the promise of Christmas is this. Someday, how good is it going to be? Someday, you're going to be able to lay down all your tools, all the things, all the skills you've developed over the years to try to advance yourself. You're not even going to need the tools for battle anymore because there's a peace coming. And someday all the trophies, you, all, the, all the things you use to try to impress people about yourself, your titles and your accomplishments, some days you won't need those anyway. Those will be in the fire too because there's the peace coming. And the peace that the Bible promises is very different than we think because in the Bible, the word for peace is actually the word shalom. And shalom, this Hebrew word, it speaks not just to the absence of conflict, which would be fine and good, but not enough. You know, even if we could get rid of the conflict around us, even if we could sort out Washington, even if we could sort out our country, even if we could we still would have a problem within us. Shalom doesn't speak to the absence of conflict. Shalom speaks to the promise of wholeness. The promise of things being, listen, returned to their original state, their original condition. So for the Christian, peace is not just the absence of conflict, because we're never really going to get there on this side of eternity, are we? we? We've figured that out, right? Peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is the promise of future wholeness. And peace is the promise of Jesus. It's the promise of Jesus. It's the presence of Jesus. That Jesus will not only defeat evil, he will put the actual battle to end. He will end the conflict itself. And on that day, every mechanism for tyranny and every memorial to tyranny will be burned up in the bonfire of God's goodness and God's grace and God's kingdom. And it won't be our work. It says it right in the text that those things will be burned. And that verb is, is, is in, the, it's, it's in the Hebrew in the passive verb tense. And here's what it means. It's not a work that you and I do. It's a work that's been done for us. Somebody else is going to take every boot and every, and, and every garment and all the battles, gonna, just going to take them and say, you don't need these anymore because I've already won the battle for you. So how does Gideon lead the people of Israel into victory when they don't have enough people, they don't have any weapons, they don't even get to fight? How do you win that battle? You only win that battle if somebody else fights for you. And that is the story of Christmas, that Jesus came to bring peace, but he brought peace by fighting for us, giving himself. The wholeness of God came down to the brokenness of humankind and entered into our chaos and entered into our mess. And and Jesus willingly was separated from the Father so that you and I never would have to be. The story of Christmas is that the Son of God became a human like us so that humans like us could become sons and daughters of God. And that's the peace that we can experience because of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says it this way. Look at these verses and we're going to close. But now in Christ Jesus, I'm reading from Ephesians 2. You who were once far off, that's you and me. I don't care if you've been in church like me your whole life. Because of our sin nature, we once were far off. We've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace. I want you to hear that. He himself is our peace. Sometimes we think, Jesus, if you just give me some peace, if you just wrap up some peace in a box and put it under my tree this Christmas, I would take that peace. I would love that peace. I would welcome that peace. And here's what Jesus wants to say to you this morning. I can't give you peace apart from giving you myself. Because Jesus doesn't give us peace. He is peace. If we want his peace, we have to receive him and who he is and all that he's done. Yes, we need less drama, less conflict, less separation, less estrangement. But what we really need is more Jesus. More Jesus. Paul goes on to say, He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He abolished the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That's a lot there. Essentially what Paul is saying, Jesus did what we couldn't do. He kept the rules for us because we're rule breakers. But because he did that, he made a way for us to be right before the Father. In verse 16, he might reconcile us. There's that word, reconciliation. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Therefore, thereby, he killed the hostility. The separation between us and God, Jesus put to death in verse 17. And he came to us, incarnation, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and preached to those peace to those who were near. He's speaking of the Gentiles and the Jewish people. And then 700 years after this prophecy, on a normal night, in a normal field, angels appeared and said this to unexpecting shepherds. Luke 2, verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you the gospel. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, it seems suddenly, but this was forever in making from eternity beyond. There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And Jesus became our peace and he lived on earth among us. It's a peace against all odds. You can't get it for yourself. You can't give it to yourself. You can't give it to anyone else. You gotta trust that Jesus did the work for you. It's a peace in all of life. There's not a relationship represented in this room that Jesus can't breathe peace into. There's not a situation, a circumstance, a challenge, a diagnosis that Jesus can't be your peace in and through. And it's also a peace for all time. When you get weary, when you get weary watching the news, when you get weary looking at things around us, look forward. Because someday there will be a peace for all time. And every boot of warfare and every garment rolled in blood will be useful only to God's purposes and plans. Because he'll establish his kingdom here. And his kingdom will reign forever. And it will be a kingdom of peace. Let's pray together.